Hi, I'm Jonathan Sapovitz, and this is a Research Minute on the Supri Knowledge Hub. Research Minutes are brief updates on cutting-edge educational research to keep policymakers and practitioners informed about what we're learning from research. I'm here today with Chris Curran, an Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County School of Public Policy. Chris studies school discipline policy, early childhood education, and teacher labor markets. Today, we're discussing an article Chris wrote that just came out in December of 2016 in Education Evaluation and Policy Analysis, a journal of the American Educational Research Association. And his article is called Estimating the Effects of State Zero Tolerance Laws on Exclusionary Discipline, Racial Discipline Gaps, and Student Behavior. Hi, Chris. How are you today? Hi, John. I'm doing well. I appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation. Awesome. So, Chris, can you tell me a little bit about what are zero tolerance laws and what's the theory about how they're supposed to reduce behavior problems? Absolutely. You know, to understand a state zero tolerance law, which is the focus of my paper, I think one of the best things to do is to first understand what I'll call zero tolerance policies. And so these are sort of the school level activities that we deem zero tolerance. So the term zero tolerance has really been applied to a wide range of different school discipline practices. These could range from the practice of suspensions and expulsions to discipline that focuses on minor infractions, even to the use of things like security cameras and police officers in schools. And so there tends to be a lot of ambiguity around this term zero tolerance. For the purposes of my paper, though, I think of zero tolerance as being policies that mandate a certain consequence for a certain behavior. So that is to say, for example, if a student was to bring a gun to school, the school might have a policy that says that student must be expelled. Or if a student was to get in a fight, the school may have a policy that says anyone that gets in a fight must be suspended for some period of time. So in general, these zero tolerance policies pre-mandate a certain part of discipline and mandate that for certain disciplinary actions. So if that's a zero tolerance policy at the school level, then a state zero tolerance law are the legal statutes at the state level that require school districts to have zero tolerance disciplinary policies. And so a good example of these are the laws that came out um, in the mid-90s as a result of the 1994 Federal Gun-Free Schools Act. And so this law, the federal law, was a law that required states to pass state laws that required districts to have policies that expelled students who brought firearms to school. And what the federal government did is they attached this law to funding, you know, to more or less incentivize or say, well, if you're getting federal funding, the state has to have this law on the books. And so as a result, states throughout the mid-90s following the passage of the federal law began passing state versions of the Gun-Free Schools Act in which they required their school districts in the state to have zero tolerance discipline policies for firearms. Now, a few states already had these types of laws on the books, and a few went further than the, the requirement of firearms to include other infractions. So a number of states included um, the category of assault, or they may have uh, used the law to include drug offenses. So the idea of a zero tolerance state law then is one of these state laws that requires school districts and the state to expel a student for some predefined consequence. And so we think about, you asked about the theory and why we might expect zero tolerance to work, right? And the idea of zero tolerance is really based on this theoretical framework of deterrence. And so deterrence theory is sort of the notion that severe and certain punishment will cause rational actors, will cause people to make decisions not to break rules, right? So it's the same sort of theory that drives many criminal justice policies, such as mandatory minimums, long sentences for drug offenses, and so forth. The idea is if we know doing action X, such as bringing a gun to school, will result in the severe consequence like being expelled, that a student will choose not to bring the gun to school. Now, we may have some worries about that theory, right? The literature on deterrence theory 
is a, a little ambiguous as to whether these sorts of policies actually work. And that's particularly true when we think about youth or children, because often if we're thinking about, say, a third grader, their ability to reason through, think about, understand, and appreciate the consequences of actions obviously is not quite as developed as, say, an adult would be. And even for high school students who may have the ability to understand the consequence or reason through it, there's also a lot of literature that says they're more susceptible to peer pressures and acting on impulse and some of these actions. So deterrence is the reason why we think zero tolerance might work, but there's also a lot of reasons to question whether that would actually work in the school environment. In your paper, you lay out some pretty important effects of these kind of policies, which are not so desirable. Do you want to mention some of those? Absolutely. So in the last couple of years, zero tolerance policies have gotten a lot of pushback from policymakers, educators, the popular media. And I think a lot of that's driven by the sort of tight link between zero tolerance policies and the use of exclusionary discipline. By exclusionary discipline, I mean practices like suspension and expulsion, disciplinary actions that take students out of the learning environment. Despite not being a ton of evidence on the effects of specific zero tolerance policies, there is a large body of evidence on the relationships between suspension and expulsion and outcomes for students. Right, so the data would tell us that students that are suspended or expelled tend to have more negative consequences down the line. Right? So they're more likely to struggle academically, they may be more likely to experience future disciplinary infractions, and even as far as being more likely to be interacting with the criminal justice system. So a lot of these things kind of drive some of the concern that if we have a zero tolerance policy that says a student must be suspended, are we actually doing more harm than good? Are we causing students to experience a suspension that then puts them off track academically, puts them off track behaviorally, and leads to negative outcomes down the road? Should we also be worried about uh, racial disparities with the effects of zero tolerance policies? I think that's right. So that, that's sort of the second part of the pushback against these policies, right? Number one is that they may be causing harm for any of the students that experience it. But the second is that there appear to be wide disparities in who experiences exclusionary discipline and who gets punished under zero tolerance policies. All right, so data um, from the National Civil Rights Data Collection, which is a national representative data set, Department of Education collects, tells us that nationally a black student is about three times as likely to be suspended as their white peers, or the suspension rate of black students is about three times the suspension rate of white students. So this is what we often hear kind of called the black-white discipline gap. And this is, you know, for policymakers and educators, problematic. This represents um, sort of a failure of, of policy and an inequitable outcome that, that we think should be remedied. So, in fact, uh, about two years ago, the Department of Education and the Department of Justice put out a joint Dear Colleague letter, which was really focused on the non-discriminatory use of school discipline. And it had a lot of recommendations and has prompted school districts to revisit a lot of their discipline policies and focus on ways in which they can be more equitable across racial boundaries. And so a lot of this has kind of driven the conversations around reevaluating zero tolerance policies and examining their impact with disparities in school discipline. Okay. So this seems like a tough problem to get to the bottom of. So can you talk a little bit about how you tried to understand the effects of zero tolerance policies? Absolutely. So what I wanted to do in my paper was to take take us sort of beyond looking at the effects of suspension or expulsion and examine actual policies, right? So a codified policy in a state statute that we could read and that we could, you know, state legislature could think about repealing. And so to do that, I combined data from several different data sources. Um, the first data source was the uh, data from the Office of Civil Rights Data Collection. So this is, again, data collected by the federal government. 
And this data has been collected for several decades and includes suspension rates for a nationally representative set of school districts. So I use that data to see the extent to which schools are using suspension, as well as the extent to which they use suspension for black students or white students or Hispanic students across the different racial boundaries. The second part that I wanted to accomplish with my paper was to examine the extent to which these policies had an influence on the remaining students in the school environment. And so one of the arguments that proponents of zero tolerance or severe discipline put forward is that, well, yes, maybe suspending a student hurts that student's outcomes, but it's necessary to maintain an orderly school environment. In other words, if we could get rid of a few of the bad apples, the school environment for the rest of the students would be improved. And a lot of the literature hasn't sort of examined that aspect of school discipline. So I took a second data set called the Schools and Staffing Survey, which is another nationally representative data set. And the Schools and Staffing Survey, or SAS as it's sometimes called, has survey items where they ask principals to rate the degree to which a series of behaviors are problems in the school. So principals can, can rate on a scale from not a problem to a very serious problem that an action like weapons or fighting or disrespect or drug use is a problem in their school. So I use that data to be able to sort of tap this idea of what's happening at the school broadly. See what's happening with suspension rates. Now let's also see whether principals report fewer fights, fewer incidents of drugs and so forth. So I use those two data sets to get my main outcomes. And then I combined some data that I collected um, on the actual presence of these laws. So I spent a lot of time examining when states adopted different state discipline laws. Right? And so again, some of these states had zero tolerance laws prior to the Gun-Free Schools Act. Many of them adopted it because of the Gun-Free Schools Act. And then many in the years after that expanded their law to include other infractions like assaults or drugs. And so the sort of approach was to use that variation to look at when states adopted these policies and to use that to predict the suspension rates or to predict the principal's perceptions of problem behaviors. So if I, if I had a little um, drum here, I'd do a little drum roll. I'm curious about what you found. Well, I find the presence of state zero tolerance laws are predictive of increases in the rate of suspension use. Um, so in particular, when these laws are present, any type of this law, I find that school districts on average are suspending about half a percentage point more students per year. Now, at first pass, that might seem sort of small, right? But it might help to kind of put that in context. So that half percentage point increase uh, it represents about an 8% increase in the use of suspensions. So the average district in the data was suspending about 6% of their students. So going up by a half percentage point is about a six, about an 8% increase on that. For the average size school district in the data set, this represents about 35 more students suspended per year. And so when you think in those numbers, 35 students is a, a non-trivial number of, of students in the school district. I find an increase overall. Then the other thing I do is I look by race, right? So we kind of mention the issues of the black-white discipline gap and disparities by race when it comes to school discipline. And I find that for black students, these laws predict a larger increase in suspension rates than for white students, which gives some evidence that these laws appear to be disproportionately increasing suspension rates for black students and thereby potentially contributing to the black-white discipline gap. And as I disaggregate some of this, I find that a lot of these disparities seem to really be driven by some of the, the laws that pertain to weapon offenses and assault offenses. So in some of the analyses, I break out the analysis by the type of state zero tolerance discipline law that exists. And it seems to be that laws pertaining to the broader category of weapons as opposed to just firearms or laws uh, pertaining to drug offenses seem to predict the largest increases in suspension rates. Okay. So what about principal impressions? Right. So the second thing I was interested in is, well, what happens to the rest of the school? 
So it could be that these laws increase suspension rates, but it could be that that's not a necessarily bad thing if it was to improve the school district's environment as a whole. So in the analyses that examine principles of radiance of problem behaviors, I actually find that there's not consistently decreases in problem behaviors. And in fact, in a few instances, principals actually report higher incidences or, or more of these uh, issues taking place in their schools. So this gives me some evidence that these laws, um, despite what they're perhaps intended to do, don't seem to be increasing the safety of the school environment overall, at least in the perception of principals, right? Which may not be a perfect measure of the actual safety or order of the school, but it's you know, one of the best proxies that we can do with the data. If states think about how to refine their disciplinary policies, what would you suggest? Yeah, well, so some of the policy implications of this, right? One thing I want to be careful to say is that I don't think this work tells us that we should entirely eliminate all zero tolerance policies or all punitive disciplinary policies. There probably are instances where the use of a suspension or an expulsion is an appropriate use um, to maintain safety. As if a student is violent at school or is bringing a weapon to school, you know, it may be that that student needs to be removed from the school environment for some period of time. That said, I think schools need to be careful and cautious that they don't overly rely on these punitive approaches. And so that's to say that, you know, if we think about a student who is engaging in some high-risk behavior, simply removing that student from the school environment for some period of time probably is not going to do a whole lot to improve that student's academic engagement, behavior, and so forth. And so just like we see in the literature, when that student does return to the school environment, they're probably going to be more likely to struggle academically, to struggle behaviorally, and these are just going to reap potentially more problems down the line. So I'd really encourage school districts to think about ways in which when we use punitive discipline, we can couple these with supports. After all, these are the students that probably need the most support. Simply removing them from school takes away you know, one of the best kind of resources potentially in their environment. So I think schools should be looking for ways to re-engage these students, both academically, but also ways to repair relationships that may be broken with their peers, with staff and teachers at the school and ways to sort of counsel these students back to more positive activities, right? You know, and there's some promising approaches out there. So you may be familiar with positive behavior intervention systems, restorative justice models. A lot of these approaches to discipline have mechanisms that kind of allow for that re-engagement of the student or the repairing of the wrongs. And I think, you know, hold a lot of promise for improving outcomes. Those are really good suggestions. Well, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. And I hope that your endeavors are successful. Right. Well, thank you for the opportunity, John. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to Research Minutes. To share your thoughts on this discussion, head to khconversations at cprehub.org. To subscribe to our weekly podcast and to listen to more interviews, head to soundcloud.com slash Hub. And for the latest videos, podcasts, and discussion updates, follow us at CPRI Hub on Twitter and at CPRI Knowledge Hub on Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you.